Welcome to America Now. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Either you are with us or you are with the terrorists. If you've got health care already, then you can keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. FBI Director James Comey is fired. He is out at the Federal Bureau of Investigation. Got breaking news for you here, my friends. This just hitting the wires uh, minutes ago before I came on air here. Comey is out. Oh, this is just going to set the media uh, alight with rage, with conspiracy theories, with all kinds of stuff. Buck Sexton here with you all now. 844-900-2825. 844-900-BUCK. What do you think about Comey out? I am I, not surprised. Well, the timing is surprising. But that Comey was fired isn't surprising because the FBI director is a very important position in the, in the uh, administration. And that he was able to last this long. Uh, is honestly kind of a surprise. Um, so, you know, here he is. Uh, but of course, this particular FBI director is uh, not like FBI directors past. He has been uh, a very political figure, as we know. Whether he wanted to or not, he certainly has been. And that this happens right after uh, the testimony by Sally, uh, former acting attorney general Sally Yates yesterday and former director of national intelligence James Clapper on Russia issues and collusion and surveillance and leaks to the press about surveillance. All of the questions that were asked here, we have a a real uh, news headline that's not just an effort to get the FBI and Russia and Comey back onto screens and in people's minds across the country this is this is uh, quite quite an event today so uh, and i'm i'm just processing uh, processing it now with all of you on air it just happened it just got announced so uh oh trump's letter you're going to you're going to want to hear this this was uh not your this was not your standard so-and-so has been a fantastic public servant, and we wish him all the best with his endeavors, and we thank him for his selflessness and his uh, putting himself on the line for his country and his post as director of whatever, and, you know, all the best, but we got to move in a new direction. See you later. This, that, that's usually what you get in this kind of situation. Oh, the White House took a little different tact here. Uh, this is the letter. Um, this is the letter that is out there right now that Donald Trump sent to James Comey. Dear Director Comey, I have received the attached letters from the Attorney General and Deputy Attorney General of the United States recommending your dismissal as the Director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation. 
I have accepted their recommendation and you are hereby terminated and removed from office effective immediately. While I greatly appreciate you informing me on three separate occasions that I am not under investigation, I nevertheless concur with the judgment of the Department of Justice that you are not able to effectively lead the Bureau. It is essential that we find new leadership for the FBI that restores public trust and confidence in its vital law enforcement mission. I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. Signed, Donald J. Trump. Wow. Comey wasn't even asked to resign. Comey got a letter of termination. He got fired. Fired. You know, not like nice fired where you say, uh, you know, we would we would like you to consider moving on to the private sector and a, and a lucrative career of, you know, consulting and speech giving. Um, please give us your letter by the end of the day. And then everyone says and then they just give speeches about what a wonderful public servant you were and how great you were. Right. Which is usually warranted. Even if someone's messed up, everyone makes mistakes. So you, if you have to ask for someone's resignation, unless there's gross malfeasance, you want to do it in a nice way. But this was, in true Trumpian fashion, you fired. He just you fired Comey. Comey got fired here. Uh, I I think that that's that's um, clearly sending a message. Well, Comey got a message, but um, sending a message much more broadly to the rest of the country um, that uh, the president was not happy with this FBI director. Now, there was a mistake that was made by the FBI director. I believe the uh, bureau sent Congress a letter to update or to correct the testimony uh, that Comey had given about uh, Huma emails, right? Um that's so. So Comey had made had made some uh, some errors. Comey's claim to Congress about Clinton aides emails uh, wasn't true. This on CNN. Uh, FBI Director James Comey erroneously told Congress last week that former Hillary Clinton aide Huma Abedin, quote, forwarded hundreds and thousands of emails to her husband's laptop. And the bureau is looking for a way to clean up his error, according to officials familiar with the matter. According to Comey, emails had been forwarded to the computer of Abedin's husband, former New York Representative Anthony Weiner. But U.S. officials told CNN last fall the majority of the thousands of emails reviewed by the FBI got to Weiner's computer via a backup system for Abedin's phone. However, Comey suggested hundreds and thousands of emails have been deliberately sent from Abedin to Weiner's computer. Um, the number was far fewer than what Comey described. So Comey had a, had a little mess up last week in his testimony. Not that it, I mean, look, they should correct it obviously. And it's, it's a mistake, but it doesn't really make all that much difference. They, whether it was five emails or a hundred emails, they had already decided that there was no criminal intent. So there would be no prosecution of Huma Avedin. So it, it, this is a matter of correcting the record, not a matter of repairing deep damage. Other people would say, oh, well, making a few email mistakes is different than hundreds that's true I, I will grant that but in the grand scheme of things with clinton and huma and all the emails that were being exchanged on the clinton server you know a hundred two hundred if if a hundred's okay i mean how, how much of a difference are you really going to say that you know a hundred up or a hundred well a hundred up would really make 
Uh, so Comey got fired here. Uh, this is, to me, it seems pretty clear that the FBI director has been uh, has been canned, um, and that the testimony last week being incorrect was the opportunity. I I don't think Trump cares. I don't think I don't think Jeff Sessions as Attorney General really cares all that much about this mistake. If Comey was in uh, good standing with them, he probably would have been able to keep going despite this error, uh, especially given the, the administration has made some of its own errors of fact at different times on issues, well, large and small. Uh, but Comey is gone, and clearly they wanted to get rid of him. I have some questions that may not have particularly exciting answers um, because it could just be they didn't get around to it. They didn't want to deal with the political heat. They didn't want to be caught up in yet another uh, news cycle of, well, they're replacing Comey because of Russia. We'll get into that in a second. But I would want to know why they didn't do this right away. It would have been a much more obvious choice to uh, the first month. I mean, in January, when President Trump becomes President Trump officially, when he was sworn in, uh, they should have gotten rid of the FBI director right then and there and replaced him. So uh, this is an example of, well, we don't know yet. It may just be that they wanted to give Comey a shot and see how he did. It may just also, by the way, in Trump's email saying, I appreciate you telling everybody I wasn't under, I wasn't under, um, quote, uh, greatly appreciate you informing me on three separate occasions that I'm not under investigation, end quote. That's a very Trump, very Trump thing to insert in the firing letter. Uh, I mean, this was a pink slip. This was security meets you at your desk. I'm sure they didn't do this to him, but I mean, metaphorically, this is security meets you at your desk and they've got a box for you and it's, you know, they're going to watch you pack your things. This is, if this were top chef, it's pack up your knives and go. I mean, you're, you're done. Or obviously if this were the apprentice, you're fired. So uh, that's what happened here. Why they didn't hold on to him longer. I am not, I'm not clear on it. Um, or, or sorry, why they did hold on to him longer, why they didn't fire him sooner. I am not clear on that. Uh, a lot of different theories you could come up with, and I'll, I'm going through some of them with you now. Uh, but you can imagine that saying that they wanted to give him a shot or saying that they wanted some continuity uh, isn't necessarily going to placate. Well, I don't think it'll placate any of the critics of the administration, really, because here's what this is going to turn into now. Right. Yeah. It's why do we care? So well, why is it such a big deal that Comey's getting fired? It's totally within the prerogative of the president. Keep in mind that the Trump administration also fired some uh, U.S. attorneys. And, and whether it was Preet uh, Bharara or from the U.S. Southern District, he was a, he he went sort of kicking and screaming. He didn't go quietly. Uh, he didn't get fired quietly. Um, but there were some others as well across the country. And it was written up as though Trump had done something wrong, even though it wasn't unprecedented. It's happened with many previous administrations. It's really actually standard to have a house cleaning at the Department of Justice. Uh, but also the fact of the matter is that it's completely within the president's power. And so if he chooses to do it, he chooses to do it. If he wants new attorney attorneys general, I'm sorry, uh, U.S. attorneys, pardon me with the legal terminology. If he wants new U.S. attorneys, he wants new U.S. attorneys. They serve at the pleasure of the president. 
uh, FBI director. They want to get rid of the FBI director. They can do that. Uh, so FBI director here has been fired. The media is going to use this as, and this is why I don't know if this is a, if this will work to the administration's benefit, at least in the short term, because the narrative here, as you all can see right away, is going to be Trump is under investigation. DOJ slash FBI have been the most problematic for him. Um, as, as he said, Comey has come out and said several times that Trump's not an investigation. But you had Sally Yates yesterday saying, I don't know if there's uh you know, I don't know if there's any collusion or not. I can't say one way or the other. Maybe Trump thinks that there are more uh, Obama loyalists who are stashed away somewhere in DOJ and he's just lost trust in senior DOJ officials that were, as Comey was, in office under Obama. Right. That may, he, he may have seen what Yates did yesterday in that testimony. He's been like, you know what, I, I don't want any Obama holdovers in my administration at the top of the Department of Justice, or the FBI. Uh, but the media is going to lose their minds over this one. You know what's going to happen here, of course. There is an there is at least reporting about an active investigation into Trump Associates, you know, an FBI counterintelligence investigation. This is what's been reported on for months. And the firing of the FBI director here is whether fairly or unfairly, going to be portrayed by all of Trump's enemies in the media, the Democratic Party, and the progressive left more generally. They're going to use this and say, see, he's interfering with the investigation. He's sending a message to other people in the FBI. You better back off. And this is not a difficult narrative for them to run with. Uh, I don't think it is true, but I can see how they will push it, and I can see how they think they'll be able to uh, use this to damage the administration's credibility with some with some folks. I, I, not people that are supportive of Trump, but people that are wondering what's really going on with this whole investigation. I think, and like I said at the start, this is just breaking now, so I am processing and analyzing this firing on air with, with just as it has happened, right? I've just gotten news of this, and I'm talking to you, my friends, about this first and foremost. Uh, but this could lead to a a somewhat punishing news cycle for the administration. But I know some Trump people will call me and say, Buck, it's going to be they, they hate him anyway. And maybe he just decided, you know what? I might as well just just uh, deal with this now. Take the hit now. Fire Comey. Yeah, they're all going to say it's, you know, he's messing up the investigation, but he's a holdover from the Obama administration. And we don't trust him. We don't want him in the role anymore. He. Uh, he came out and did that weird speech uh, speech saying that Hillary's not going to get prosecuted. So anyway, there's, there's a lot more. I, I want to talk about the, the politics of this in some more detail. And I want to know what you think about this. Should Comey have been fired? Think it's the right move? Firing him now? Firing him in general? The point that I would put back on you is uh, somebody came over, gave us a heads up on a situation, told us there were materials. Um, we were provided those materials seven days later, reviewed those materials, underwent a process of uh, reviewing the situation, and ultimately the president made a decision and it was the right one. So uh, I, I think that the, the, the process worked, frankly. He served with distinction in uniform for over 30 years, and the president does not want to smear a good man. 
Big headline on CNN last night. It took 18 days to fire General Michael Flynn. And the uh, the photo that CNN on its homepage went with was is like a red background with the Kremlin and ominous-looking photo of Yates, uh, Sally Yates, Donald Trump, and General Flynn with the Kremlin right there. I mean, they might as well have just had Vladimir Putin shirtless in the background looking at them approvingly with a big smile on his face or something, right? I mean, it was just the uh, the optics are are <laughs> pretty obvious here. Uh, but the whole Flynn firing story they tried to get a lot of attention for yesterday, I saw CNN was running with it. Oh, Flynn. It took 18 days to fire Michael Flynn. So what? Okay, so they wanted to figure out what was really going on. They didn't want to ruin someone's reputation and humiliate him on a national stage without real reason and to make sure they were right. But e- even if they were slow for whatever reason, it's what difference does it really make? He's still somebody with a long career in the military, still served at very senior levels of intelligence in the military. He's advising Trump. He advised him for a couple of weeks longer than he would have otherwise. You know, what, what, what is the, they tried to make this a story. And I, I just saw it and thought to myself, well, this isn't really a story at all. So you've got the Flynn firing that they, are, are making it seem like somehow, even though he was fired, because that might, under other circumstances, make this seem like, okay, what's the big deal? We fired the guy, right? And so he, he had some ethical lapses on his forms or judgment lapses or whatever. You know, he, he, he lied to Pence. You got Yates saying she thought that made him vulnerable to blackmail. By the way, I think that whole blackmail line from Yates is, is quite a bit overstated. Uh, well, the Russians are going to say, hey, you know, you better give us you better give us that secret, you know, microfilm or whatever. You know, you, you better give us uh, something that uh, we want, because if you don't, we're going to be, uh, you know, we're going to be telling people about your conversation with with the ambassador that you lied to. I mean, yeah, I mean, I guess you could say it exerts a little but blackmail. I don't I don't think a career military officer of. Flynn's distinction is going to sell out his country because there's a uh, somebody out there can say that he lied to the vice president. I don't think he lied under oath. He's not going to prison for it or anything. I'm not saying it's nothing. I'm just saying I think it's overstated that he was such a, a huge blackmail threat and this was such a concern for uh, for Sally Yates. But anyway, I think she didn't like him and I think people were looking for something to tangle up this administration with and that's what they got. But so they got the Flynn firing, and it's not good enough that he got fired, right? So now it's he didn't get fired quickly enough, and that was yesterday's story. And I I look at this, and I think, well, that's just a non-story. Okay, they fired the guy. They fired him for lying to the vice president, and now all this other stuff is really secondary, right? His clearance and everything else, this is just trying to create stories to give attention to this because, you know, Democrats like this. This is all Russia, Trump, conspiracy, collusion. Um, but the big story, of course, the big firing today is James Comey. Uh, maybe a, l- a little more on this DOJ uh, situation and why Trump may have done this when we come back. And then we'll talk immigration and some other stories that are uh, of high interest today on the show. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. 
Welcome back, team. I'm doing a little bit of uh, outrage hunting here on online on social media, trying to find the the people that are upset about uh, the Comey firing. And, and sure enough, you know, you're going to see uh, any number of uh, <laughs> any number of people that are saying this is unprecedented. Um, and yeah, of course, this is supposed to be a terrible thing. Now. As just a little background, a little history here, uh, you can be fired if you're the FBI director. In fact, a fellow by the last name Clinton did just that in 1993. Um, you had uh, President Bill Clinton who fired William Sessions, then the FBI director, FBI director from 1987 to 1993, uh, and he refused <laughs> he was given i believe the the courtesy of a hey why don't you just give us your uh, resignation letter why don't you allow us uh, to find somebody else but we're, we're and he said no um he he said that uh he had done nothing wrong there were some allegations about improprieties with this guy and he was going to stay in office until a successor was confirmed and so clinton said uh, okay uh, you are fired. He was five and a half years into a 10-year term as FBI director. Um, but that's just a term that's really a guideline. The president can make the determination. Now we get into whether this was a good idea, whether this was the right move, whether it was fair. Um, I don't know if it will work to the administration's benefit from the perspective of the Russia collusion narrative. That they mean. But I also think that it doesn't matter what they do there, right? The, those stories aren't going away. In fact, you could have had Sally Yates stand up yesterday in front of the Senate. You could have had James Clapper right along with her uh, saying as clearly as they possibly could that there is no evidence of collusion, that Trump and his team did nothing wrong, and there's no further impropriety that the American people should be concerned with when it comes to Russia and Trump and the election, which is not what they said. But I, even if that were all said at that hearing yesterday, you'd have people say, "No, no, we just haven't gotten to the truth yet." They are now they're now Trump, uh, they're now Trump truthers. Uh, they refuse to believe um, that there is any uh, any way to end this. Um, they will never be placated. You can never convince those who believe that Trump did something wrong with Russia and Putin to try to throw the election. They're they're wedded to this idea. It's never gonna never gonna stop. Okay, so we know that. So how much does it really matter that, that Trump fired Comey? I don't know because you know they're gonna hate him anyway. And I, I still don't buy Comey's whole. I didn't want Loretta Lynch to be the one saying there were no charges against Hillary Clinton. No, I, I think it should have been Loretta Lynch, actually. I think that Obama's former attorney general, who had just sat down with the husband of the subject of a major federal investigation into violations of national security information statutes, I think that she should have, that the attorney general should have had to look the American people in the eye and say, yeah, we're just not. I, I hung out with Bill and we talked about some stuff. And I, yeah, that was a couple of days ago, but we're not going to bring any charges against Hillary Clinton. I, I serve a Democrat president and I want to I don't want to press charges against the main or sorry, press charges against the 
Democrat candidate for office. Uh, so we're just not going to do that. We should have been uh, shown that reality. Comey stepping in seemed to me to be a little too clever. Why not allow the why not let the head of the Department of Justice be the one who tells the American people? Why the FBI director? Because he thinks it would he loves these institutions so much. This is where I am taking all this. All right. Comey's a little too much. Oh, I'm I'm such a Boy Scout. You know, I'm, I'm such a an honorable, good guy all the time. And there was a lot of press leading up to the decision. You many of you I know will recall this. There was a whole lot of coverage of how. James Comey was the most uh, trustworthy, honorable public servant. This stuff doesn't get written about anybody who's serving in a in a government agency uh, in this way. I mean, it was, and it was all in the in the lead up to the decision about whether to bring charges against Hillary Clinton. And oh, James Comey, oh, incorruptible Comey. I mean, Comey cannot tell a lie. Comey is the greatest. He is the best. And then, of course, he stands up and says that there were violations of classified, but it was no intent. And I I hope that the American people will hold future uh, departments of justice and, uh, well, we'll we'll hold the Department of Justice. Forget about the change because it's supposed to be nonpartisan and just based on the law. Right. So it shouldn't matter who the administration is, but it does matter, as we know. And that's part of why I think the Comey firing is so interesting. But the the Hillary defense should be available to anybody now on any national security matter. It was, yeah, even if it was reckless, because you have to have recklessness or intent for a criminal matter. That is true, right? It can't be completely unwilling and unknowing and not reckless, and you're a criminal. But that's why recklessness is there, right? Because at, at some level, you're responsible for being so irresponsible, even if you're not actively seeking to be disloyal or evil right but uh, people should be able to say well you know unless you can prove recklessness the department of justice has set a standard now and i it is deeply disturbing to see the way that there are two sets of laws in this country one for the powerful and honestly for for democrats and one for the not powerful and for republicans Uh, there are different standards at, at play i am one who will always point out, and I still don't see why this there weren't there weren't more people connecting these dots. You look at the way the Democrats view the law, and they they use it as a weapon. The law is a tool; it is an instrument. It is not an ideal. It is not a principle. It is not uh, something that serves the purpose of justice. It serves the purpose of the moment of the Democratic Party and of power. I could walk through any number of cases where you see this. I mean, high-level national cases where there's a politicized, a, a politically charged case, and when a, a Democrat issue is at stake, you you see the way that it goes. Republicans will sit back and say, well, it would be nice for us if we won this one or if this happened, but that's not what the law says. Democrats don't care. If the law says it, great, then the law is the law. If the law doesn't say it, well, then we'll find a way to pretend the law says it. That's how they play the game. And they also use prosecutors' offices as weapons. They go after people for political reasons. And I know the Tea Party with the IRS. Now, that wasn't a criminal prosecutorial misconduct per se, but it certainly was government action 
of uh, political targeting, weaponization of a major major federal agency, the scariest federal agency to most people. I mean, the FBI can ruin your life the fastest, but the IRS is probably number two on the list and uh, much more likely to ruin your life than the FBI. Uh, But look at the, in some cases, quickly um, abandoned, but at least initially pursued prosecutions of prominent Republican politicians. Uh, They went after Chris Christie on Bridgegate and made it seem like he was so guilty there. They got nothing. Chris Christie was a governor who was running for, who would be running for the Republican uh, nomination for president of the United States. They went after Scott Walker with the John Doe investigations in Wisconsin to no avail. They didn't get Walker on anything, but they were trying really hard. They went after um, uh, Rick Perry in Texas. Some prosecutor there was kind of trying to go after him for something. I mean, they were it was nonsense, right? They went after Governor Bob McDonald in Virginia uh, in order to uh, well, the, the the state didn't bring any charges, and then the, the federal government came in and, and brought charges against McDonald. They, they were going to send him to prison for like eleven years, uh, and his wife for accepting gifts. She's not even a public official, but she's getting caught up in a public corruption trial, and had to go up to the Supreme Court. And uh, this is it, it was an abomination what they did there. Um, you know, n- no public official act taken on behalf of donors for McDonald. I'm not saying it didn't look sleazy, but if looking sleazy sends you to prison, a lot of us are going to be in trouble. But these are all Republicans. Where's the equivalent? Where is the senior Democrat who has the Department of Justice, the FBI on his or her back going after him and nothing happens? And it turns out that it was all just for show or it was chasing it was chasing a. Uh, ghosts there was nothing there can you think of one i i just rattled off the top of my head a number of republicans where the, no no charges brought except for mcdonald but they had to be overturned no charges brought against uh you people say oh blagojevich yeah well blagojevich is trying to sell a senate seat on tape right i mean you know that's actual criminal behavior so don't don't we can't bring up democrats that have really broken the law. you know a democrat who gets found with eighty thousand dollars in cash in his freezer he's like a local congressman or legislative assembly member or something and People's bribery money. I mean, yeah, that's criminal activity. I'm talking about prosecutions of prominent Democrats that go nowhere. I'm, I'm not familiar with any. Democrats view the law as a weapon. But the special prosecutor, they went after, they, they were trying to go after Cheney and the Bush administration. Uh, totally trumped up stuff. But that's just how they play the game. That's how they do things. And this is why we just accept that you have a new, okay, a new attorney general for a new set of priorities, new U.S. attorneys for enacting, enacting those justice priorities. FBI director usually is, well, you had Hoover, who is what, the director for uh, a very long time. Uh, I don't know, like, oh, I think Hoover was the director for over 40 years. Um, FBI, I, I gotta, I gotta know this right now. I can't get this wrong because I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, uh, for a long time. So Hoover was the longest serving FBI director. Um, yeah. And FBI directors tend to be, what I'm trying to get at here is FBI directors tend to be holdovers, or at least possible holdovers. And uh, now we see that even that's not necessarily the case. 
um, because the law has been weaponized in this country and the Justice Department uh, is a reflection now, not just of enforcement priorities that one administration or another may have, but it is used as a kind of Praetorian Guard, Praetorian Guard, a reference to the elite uh, elite soldiers assigned to protect the Roman emperors, right? So, uh, and, and Praetorianism has become a, uh, a noun unto itself, um, uh, but I digress. This is a grotesque abuse of power by the president of the United States. That's Jeffrey Tubin, the CNN's senior legal analyst. Um, it's not an abuse of power. It's, in fact, a power that the president has. So why he's he can fire the, he can fire Comey whatever he wants. Uh, I, I don't. Well, they're going to say well, there's an active FBI investigation ongoing. OK, well, uh, that investigation might be going on for quite a long time. Are we really to believe that the rest of the FBI doesn't have the the what the, the ability to go forward with, uh, with with the rest of the investigation as it sees fit? You have to have the same person at the top. Why? I'm not sure I, I buy that. And clearly there could be uh, there can be investigations that stretch on for years. So that means you, you can't get rid of the FBI director anyway. Um, by that logic, also, are you allowed to get a new attorney general or not? No, you got to keep you got to keep the old administration's attorney general. If there's an ongoing investigation. Um, anyway, you've got to, so that's with Jeffrey Tubin. You've got here. Uh, 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 Senator Durbin. Uh, Comey's termination raises the critical question as to whether the FBI investigation of Russian interference will continue. Uh, you've got Ben Rhodes, Obama's former uh, chief propagandist uh, for the White House. Uh, this crosses a dramatic new threshold for the U.S. and without any congressional oversight for GOP, Trump much freer to erode Democratic norms. Oh, yes. The long, dark. We're back to the long, dark night of fascism, everybody. Get ready for it. Um, here we go. We've got other people. I'm trying to see what some of the other. Uh, here's a reporter for NBC. Former senior former senior FBI official tells me, well, was it a former Democrat uh, FBI director? Uh, I believe the intent here is to replace him with someone who will close the Russia probe. Um, so this is just, I asked a former, this is what this guy is saying here. You know, I asked a former FBI guy and he shared his opinion with me. This, this is meaningless, but this now passes for reporting. Uh, MSNBC host Chris Hayes, I, I could be totally wrong, but the politics of this seem terrible for the White House, at least at first blush. Not clear to me whether that's true or not. Uh, I think that's that's at least somewhat fair-minded analysis from a leftist and that this might look bad. But I think my point about how Trump doesn't care, how much worse is it going to look? Well, the media is going to really hate him now. He has full authority to do this. Um, by the way, I mentioned before uh, Hoover, and I said over 40 years. I was just doing that off the top of my head. I didn't want to keep He was FBI director. J. Edgar Hoover was FBI director for 48 years. That is a long time. That's, uh, that's a guy who's seen some stuff, I think, has, uh, has been through some stuff. 48 years as FBI director. Um, but anyway... And uh, Praetorianism, I mentioned also the term from the Praetorian Guard. Uh, Praetor was a uh, an official position, a, a very uh, a very senior position in the Roman, in ancient Rome, in the Roman government. And so Praetorianism is uh, 
well, the Praetorian Guard guarded the Praetor, guarded the Emperor. And then Praetorianism is excessive or abusive political influence of the armed forces in a country, according to the Google here. Uh, so that's something that we should always be concerned about. Praetorianism is really actually a, a fancy way of referring to the deep state. Or at least it's a, a version of the deep state when the military in a country has too much power and can depose elected officials, for example. Um, but yes, Comey's uh, been tossed. This just happened. Breaking news in the last uh, hour or so. We've been on air. And um, they're going to say that the FBI investigation... I, I, <laughs> I'm stepping back here for a second. I believe it is now safer than ever to say that no matter what comes from the investigation that is ongoing into Russia and Trump and the election... Comey's firing will give the uh, conspiracy-obsessed left enough room to run for the foreseeable future. Uh, this is now. This is very obviously going to fall down as a or fall into a uh, neat little narrative on the left, which is that here you have the president interfering in an active investigation. You know, I had people people giving me a hard time yesterday uh, on Twitter because I, I said that Trump should just declassify some of what's at issue in the hearings so we can see it and finally judge for ourselves whether there was any collusion or whether Flynn said anything bad or, you know, wh whether Flynn was intercepted or not, you know, that they should declassify these things uh, we, so we can officially talk about what's going on here. Um, and people say, oh, but there's an active investigation going on. And the investigation may be open for who knows. It's, it's an open-ended investigation. But now that Comey's gone, they're, they're never going to stop with this thing. So we'll have to strike a balance here in the Freedom Hut between talking about the latest in their efforts to smear the president so that we can push back on the falsehoods and also not getting bogged down and allow them to dictate what we talk about. But uh, we're going to get into immigration, a fascinating piece about immigrants who don't like illegal immigration. Buck Sexton with America Now. We are bold. The Freedom Hut is fired up as Team Buck assembles shoulder to shoulder, shields high. Call in 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Fascinating piece, team, in, of all places, sometimes they do uh, accidental journalism, uh, the New York Times. Pieces, sanctuary bills in Maryland faced a surprise foe, legal immigrants. Uh, ooh, wait, wait a second, you, you mean, and this is before we even dive into the substance of this piece, you mean to tell me that individuals who have gone through a legal process including making many sacrifices in, in, in with their time uh, paying money often to immigration attorneys going through and dealing with the many hoops and hurdles put in place as the immigration system currently exists uh, they've dealt with all of that they've become uh, either permanent residents or U.S. citizens, the legal way. You mean to tell me that they, at least some of them, resent 
that there are others who are treated by at least the Democrats, and if the media and Democrats have their way, will be treated exactly the same way, who just came to the country illegally. (laughs) Why is that even the least bit surprising? Why would that give anybody uh, a shock? If I had gone through, like I was born here, I was born in New York City, so I was one of the very fortunate few, when you look at the long scope of history, and you know, I'm assuming a vast majority of you listening also fall into this very fortunate category of people who just happen to be born in the United States. Not all of you, I'm sure there are immigrants listening as well, and God bless and thank you for giving me your time and being with me in the Freedom Hunt here, but... We are very lucky, those of us who were born in this country and are just citizens as a matter of our birth and our families. Uh, we are very lucky. Historically speaking, what are, what are the chances? You know, we, we could have been born in some village, you know, right before it was ravaged by the plague in medieval Europe or something. You know what I mean? Or, you know, or, or anywhere. I'm just saying you could have been born in a really rough situation. Being born in America, you're already... If you look at it from the the full scope of history, you're beating the odds by a lot. It's it's an amazing thing. It's really almost a a miracle just to be an American. And I'm talking about the full sweep of history here. You know, back to prehistory and before there was, uh, you know, any any written records of anything, and before civilization was really a thing that you could point to. Uh, but if you look at the the numbers over time. Um, it is a very, very lucky thing. And look, it's it's lucky even just looking at dealing with the 7 billion or so people on the earth today that you're one of the 300 million born in America. It's an amazing thing. But for those who choose to become American, there is a process they go through. And those who do it legally have, and I've talked to many of them about this, and I've read uh, accounts of this, and this is well understood, and it's also intuitive, right? We understand how this would come to be, that those who fight for citizenship in this country or fight for naturalization, fight to be legal immigrants here, have a particular appreciation for it. They don't take it for granted because it wasn't luck for them. I I was lucky to be an American, and and I know that. And it's not a in any way a a diminishing... um, attribute i think for those of us uh those of us who are uh, willing to come out and just say that we were lucky by being born in this country and uh, we try to be the best citizens that we can be and and appreciate it but it is uh, sometimes you just get the right number and if you're born here you get the right number so uh with the immigration debate right now you get the sense from the media that it's all the same right illegal legal who cares well some legal immigrants in response to a county in maryland becoming a sanctuary city some legal immigrants uh were annoyed by this and you could tell by the way the new york times is writing but what do you mean your illegal immigrant brothers and sisters are so shocked that you, the legal immigrant, would be annoyed that they're they're treated, in fact, with even more deference by the media because they're a a persecuted class, right? I- immigrants, the media likes, but you know you don't hear that much about immigrants. In fact, what the media does is conflate the category or the categorization of all immigrants so that legal and illegal are the same thing. 
that it's undocumented, but you're just an immigrant. And I'll get into some more of those details here in a second. Here's what the Times piece said. I mean, this was it's a great piece and we'll put it up on bucksexton.com so you can you can read it there. Uh, but it is it is a great piece um, because of the implications, right? The way the Times writes, just so like, oh, what do you what do you mean uh, that uh, illegal immigrants uh, and legal immigrants aren't just uh, uh, totally in agreement? Uh, no, in fact, okay, well, let me get into what it says in here. No, legal immigrants are like, what's going on here? Okay. When lawmakers in Howard County, Maryland, a stretch of suburbia between Washington and Baltimore, declared their intention to make the county a sanctuary for people living in the country illegally. Notice, by the way, it's not that the people are illegal. It's that they're living in the country is illegal because that could just be changed. Right. No longer are you a criminal if you do something that violates the law. Now you're a person who has violated a law. So that you're a person who has committed a crime, but you are not a criminal, right? This is a, a very intentional separation in the terminology that is meant to convey that all we have to do is make them legal and then they're legal, right? Because it's not about, or sorry, all we have to do is change the law and then they're legal. It's not about the person having taken a willful act that is in violation of the law. But okay, here we go. Uh, declare their intention to make the county a sanctuary for people living in the country illegally. J.D. Ma thought back to how hard he had worked studying English as a boy in Shanghai. Stanley Salazar, a native of El Salvador, worried that the violent crime already plaguing Maryland suburbs attributed to immigrant gangs would eventually touch his own daughters. Hongling Zhu, who had been a student in Beijing during the Tiananmen Square uprising, feared an influx of undocumented immigrants and their children would cripple the public schools. At first blush, making Howard County a sanctuary for undocumented immigrants had seemed a natural move. The county has twice as many Democrats as Republicans and a highly educated population full of scientists and engineers. One in five residents was born abroad, but the bill met stout opposition from an unlikely source. Some of those very same foreign-born residents. And quote. Um, why is that an unlikely source? Uh, for, first of all, I, I note that the, the way the Times writes about this, they are so used to just crying racism uh, whenever somebody brings up any of the following concerns. Uh, will illegals be crowding the already overcrowded school system in my district or in my county? Well, that's racist. You can't ask that. Well, if if... We're talking about a a non-white immigrant in the first place raising a concern. Calling them racist doesn't seem like a particularly effective tactic, right? It's calling an Asian-American immigrant racist because the immigrant is concerned about illegals in the schools. That's And then the same is, a, is true of crime as well. Oh, you're not allowed to be uh, concerned about illegal immigrants and the Im- illegal immigrants and the impact on on crime. That's racist. Uh, okay. Well, what about when the person who's concerned is also an immigrant, is also a not born in this country and is non-white? Is it still racist? It gets to be a harder, uh, a harder accusation to use as such an effective political tool. And that's why the time's like, well, hold on a second here. Uh, crime in neighborhoods, 
uh, overcrowding in public schools, overcrowding in emergency rooms, uh, effect on the culture of the school itself and the, you know, the, the resources that we put into English as a second language and all of these different concerns, the way the Democrats usually get around addressing them is just to say that those concerns are either illegitimate or racist. Now they can only say they're illegitimate, but you'd have to ask, well, what does the New York Times know about this local public school, for example, that an immigrant is concerned about uh, that the immigrant doesn't know? And the answer is, of course, nothing, but they just don't want to engage in the real debate and the real discussion here. Um, it goes into some very interesting uh, details here about J.D. Ma, who's one of the uh, profiles in this piece, grew up in China and taught and is a successful attorney, grew up with nothing. Right. So this is the this is the immigrant success story that we that we are told over and over. This is the immigrant success story that's constantly repeated to us. Right, someone in a foreign country doesn't speak any English, grows up poor, comes here, makes something of himself, but comes here legally, makes something of himself, and um, is successful. And this is what we are supposed to celebrate, and we should celebrate, and we do in this country. We take in a million people legally every year, more than any other country in the world. A million people become naturalized or become citizens uh, or permanent residents, green card holders, every single year. It's a lot. Right? Maybe we shouldn't be made to feel like we're this racist, xenophobic country when under the current laws we have, we've got a million here. And some people are saying, look, maybe a million is too much. It's a whole other discussion, but it's it's worth noting in, in this. Uh, but here's Mr. Ma, Chinese-American. Well, now he's just American, but he comes from China. I'm just trying to show that we're talking about an immigrant who's a non-white immigrant into this country. He sees his whole, this is back to this piece, quote, sees his whole life as a struggle to achieve his Americanness. Quote, being in America is such a high privilege. As an immigrant, I really feel it. You cannot easily give that privilege to somebody without going through some kind of process. It's like giving lots of gold for one dollar. Um, and then the piece goes on to specify that Mr. Ma uh, voted for Hillary Clinton. But hearing liberals talk about undocumented immigrants confuses him. The fact that they're entering the country broke the law is somehow sidestepped, like a crude remark at a polite dinner party. Democrats oppose deportation on the grounds that it breaks up families, Mr. Ma said, but so do other aspects of the justice system without setting off the same outcry. If a single mother commits a crime and has to go to jail, he said, we don't say, oh, we can't do that because it will break her family. End quote. I mean, this is uh, like a revelation to some people, but it should be so obvious. Yeah, of course. A legal immigrant who had to struggle and fight to come here and stay and make something of himself does not, uh, d does not see an illegal immigrant as playing fair. And this whole story, by the, this whole thing, we're constantly told about how, oh, we can't break up families. We, well, you know, we, we should have some people come in here maybe and they can talk to everyone listening who work in um, work in criminal courts. And, you know, you don't see all the newspapers writing long, teary eyed, long, teary eyed pieces about, you know, individuals who for mail fraud or for 
uh, tax evasion or any number of nonviolent crimes that, by the way, have no effect on you or me, really. Uh, they are enforcement oftentimes of what is uh, not malum in se, which is the legal terminology for just bad because it's clearly bad and evil, but malum prohibitum. I mean, the government says you can't do this. We make this illegal because we say so. I mean, they have some rationale for it, but it's often just, you know, because we say so. It's the government version of what parents say to kids and they don't want to explain because we say so. Um, violations of any number of regulations that send people to prison that aren't violent, that don't. There's no victim to point at. Uh, and sometimes the only victim is the government saying that the government's a victim. Uh, but those people get taken off to prison. Their families are left without a breadwinner. Their their families are left, you know, without a mom or a dad. And, you know, we don't hear all these stories. And when you're talking about immigration cases, it's not even about imprisoning people necessarily, but it's saying you got to go. You're in the country illegally. You This is breaking up a family based on what the law is. We've got a, a couple of million people incarcerated in this country right now. They all have families. Lots of laws result in, in families being broken up. But you'll notice that only with this do Democrats decide, and some Republicans who are their enablers, uh, that the law isn't really the law anymore, that there's a, there's a higher calling, which is keeping families together because illegal immigrants do the jobs Americans won't do. And they don't have a cohesive philosophy on this, by the way, because they won't say they're open borders. Democrats won't admit to being fully open borders. But they also don't want to tell anybody who's here that they can't stay. Unless they're a violent criminal, right? But even on that, they sometimes uh, back out. But all right, more more on this piece. I think this is fascinating. We've got Joe in Charlotte on WPTI in the line. What's up, Joe? Yeah. Hey, how's it going? Good. Thanks for calling in. Hey, Buck. Love you, man. You're yeah. awesome. Thank you. Uh, hey, I was just I was just going to point out that uh, you had said there's all these laws and everything that result in the separation of families. I just wanted to point out that it's not the law that separates the families. you got to break it. you got to actually break the law. And uh, if I can say one other thing, I, I had a real close friend I used to live with, actually a roommate, who was here illegally, and uh, he, he was caught drunk driving. He was actually caught drunk driving three times, and the first two times, uh, the Charlotte police let him, you know, let him just pay a fine or, or whatever, you know, suspend license and all this stuff, and after years, he finally got caught a third time, and uh, they, they ended up deporting him back to uh, Brazil. Good, great guy, loved him, but he was breaking the law. He's okay, though, right? I mean, he's back in Brazil. You know, people act yeah. like anybody who's, you know, anyone who's sent to the country of their citizenship or country of origin, country of citizenship, it's like, uh, it's like they're being sent to the Soviet gulag. I mean, look, America's number one. I get that. And I'd, I'd be bummed if I had to leave America and I liked it here, too. But, you know, Brazil's not terrible. Brazil's a nice, I've never been, but I hear nice things. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm with you. I, I feel very blessed and fortunate to have been born here. Last I heard, actually, he had moved over to England. Um, so I, I think he had moved there illegally as well. So I, I don't know. I lost track of him uh, a few years yeah, ago. Yeah, and, you know, Joe, I, I assume that if I just showed up in Monaco and I was like, look, I want to live here and I don't want to pay any taxes, 
that they would send me home. Like this is not the way it works. Is not I, I want to be here and I want to contribute and therefore everything is fine. Um, that's that's not the the situation. But Joe and Charlotte, uh, great to have you, sir. Thank you for calling in. I want to get back into some of the details of the, these profiles in this piece um, because this is a it's look it's a, a very important. Uh, discussion and it shows you the in a microcosm way because this is just one county in Maryland that's very two to one Democrat to Republican very progressive very liberal and it is immigrants who are spearheading this fight against the sanctuary the new sanctuary status of this county and things come up these immigrants bring up these no these points like the Salvadoran gang MS-13 which has had a stronger uh, foothold in some areas because of the illegal immigrant population uh, recently. You know, th- again, this is one of these points where if you make this and you're me or you're someone, uh, someone else who's not an immigrant, and particularly if you're white and you make these kinds of arguments about the rise in crime because of illegal immigrant communities and the ties between a gang like MS-13 and those illegal communities, people just call you racist. Right. The fact that the argument could also mean, and when I make it certainly does mean, that I want immigrant communities to be safer and not have not have high levels of crime. Therefore, illegal immigrants who, you know, this they never want to get into the honest, uh, the honest truth about this stuff. And one way, and this comes up um, as well, is that they won't give you statistics on illegal immigrant crime. They just don't have them. They always talk about immigrant crime. Well, my expectation is that immigrants would commit even fewer crimes than native-born Americans because we should be picking the best immigrants possible. So that's not surprising at all. Our immigrants are great. But what's going on with illegal immigrants? Can we at least know what the crime numbers are? The answer for the government is uh, from the government is no, you can't. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. Brent from New Mexico on the iHeart app. What's up, my friend? Hey, Buck. Shields high. Shields high. Now, I just want to make a comment about this. I live in rural New Mexico, and it's... uh. It's a site of uh, Fletzy Federal Law Enforcement and Training Center for all of our ICE agents and stuff like that. And there's no sanctuary down here, and I think that's the ultimate end of the problem is because there's a lot of farming and stuff that goes on here, but if they are illegal, they stop at every stop sign. They do not speed. There is no DUIs because there is none of the sanctuary city stuff. If they get pulled over, they're getting sent home. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, if you tell me so, yeah. Well, yes, sir. I mean, it's just a the sanctuary city, I mean, they you don't see them crossing the border, you know, and going to these rural areas to do all of the all of that stuff. It's if they're if they're trying to do something wrong, it seems to me they're going to L.A. the bigger metropolitan areas to get that done. Well, that's where uh, uh, yeah, there's a huge portion of the illegal immigrant population in in some of the biggest cities in the country. That's where you see a lot of the draw, and that's also why the, the politics of these cities now, which are, are you know there's LA County, New York County, uh, so it's not even just a city; it's the environs, the surrounding areas, and suburbs as well. Um, but they are uh, all in on illegal immigration. There's no way to get 
uh, no way to get them to change their policies. You would have to have take you'd have to take real federal action, which the Trump administration is beginning to do. But it's going to be a fight every step of the way because the entire political apparatus in these cities that are uh, heavy with illegal immigrant populations, uh, they're they're not going to stop fighting on this because the from the mayor down to city councilman down to the you know municipal water authority guys that are elected and the dog catcher. I mean everybody is in on the sanctuary city uh, politics, and they don't want to change that. So uh, interesting to hear from what's going on down in uh, something else. Brent, I'm sorry. What was that? No, sir, that's it. Oh, okay. All right. Well, thank you for calling from New Mexico. I appreciate it. Chill's high. I want to get back to this piece because, again, this is in the New York Times, what we're talking about here. And this is illegal, I'm sorry, legal immigrants who are not psyched about their county in Maryland becoming a sanctuary city or a sanctuary area. And and the New York Times like, what do you mean? I just like want like everyone to be able to be here. Like there should be like no illegal people because as long as they don't like like live right next to me in Beverly Hills, like whatever. This, this is kind of the liberal mentality about this. As long as I don't have to deal with it, as long as there aren't illegals flooding my schools or my emergency rooms or increasing crime in my area, I feel good about myself by foisting the costs of illegal immigration on other people. And I get to feel like, well, I'm an advocate for it. So I'm a good person. I mean, this is all, by the way, this is just at the heart of what the Democrat party has become uh, because illegals have now uh, illegal immigrants are now convinced of the, the rightness of their status here, meaning that the rightness of their, being able to stay here because of self-serving Democrat propaganda, right? De- Democrats are just pro-illegal at this point. And those who fight for citizenship, though, and those who fight for legal status the right way, I don't mean fight for legal status through amnesty. I mean, go through the process and the stages of legal immigration. They see what's happening with illegal in this country and they're like, well, what is this? Am I a, am I a chump? Was I scammed? Why did I pay an immigration attorney? Why did I wait five, ten, maybe fifteen years to legally be in this country? I mean, you find out uh, from those who have gone through the process the right way. You know, they they had to miss uh, they had to miss family visits back home, and they couldn't leave, and they had to stay here, and uh, and they were playing by rules. There were rules. And there weren't always, you know, rules that were convenient or what they wanted, but they abided by them because they wanted to be Americans. And we're now just being told to abandon that by Democrats all the time. That's what's what they offer up. Uh, you don't need you don't need to go through the process. You can just just come and stay and vote Democrat. That's all that really matters. Come and stay. Get Obamacare. Get on benefits as fast as you can. Because the Democrat Party is the party of statism, is the party of collectivism, is the party of welfare. Uh, and we'll we'll hook you up. Just just come here and stay here. Back to this New York Times piece, though, uh, about immigrants who oppose sanctuary status, who oppose illegals flooding their area. Quote, uh, you, this is a guy, I, I didn't give you all the background on all of them because I don't have the time, but his name is uh, Biplab Pal. Um, and he said the following. You see the Indians, this is him talking or speaking, you see the Indians get very angry 
because they have suffered so much to get a green card, said Mr. Powell, sitting at a table laden with Indian sweets. They think a country with one-sixth of the world's population should have more slots. But instead, everybody is fighting for illegal immigration. Yeah, that's right. That's what Democrats are really pushing for. Democrats just want amnesty because they want the votes. What that will do to the legal immigration system, what it will do to uh, this country and our economic and political future, and they, they don't care about it. As long as they're in power, as long as the Democrat Party wins and they can inflict their ideology and their day-to-day goals on the rest of the country, they don't really, whatever they have to do to get there, they're willing to do it. Back to our friend here, uh, Mr. Powell. <laughs> Back to our friend, Mr. Powell. Um, he got his own green card, according to the New York Times piece here, in just a few months as part of a special category reserved for inventors and researchers. His company makes software that tracks the functioning of factory equipment. But he had a different objection to sanctuary than the previous guy we talked about. He believed that it would lead to an increase in crime. He used to live in Los Angeles, in a neighborhood with many undocumented immigrants and lots of crime. He saw a connection, you don't say. He conceded that his evidence was only anecdotal, of course, but there are no statistics to draw upon. Intentionally so, from the government, by the way. But the research that liberals were always sending him to change his mind was unsatisfying. Quote, it's always crime statistics for all immigrants, he said. It's true, crime is very low for legal immigrants. But I want to know about illegal immigrants. Nobody has statistics for that. Mr. Powell is right. They don't have statistics on that. They won't keep them. They don't even try to have them. I wonder why. Um... And then he said, uh, but now the talk is of sanctuary. Mr. Powell believes that would amount to an invitation. Do we really want more illegal immigrants in our country? He said, I don't think the answer is yes. And he said, most undocumented immigrants are Latino. And some sanctuary supporters believe that the Asian Americans who oppose it and who came by uh, to this country by airplane to earn graduate degrees look down on those who cross the border on foot as a matter of race, class, or misplaced fear. Perhaps legal immigrants should be more understanding, Mr. Powell said, but that might be asking too much. Frankly speaking, each immigrant has their own little story of how they struggled in the United States, he said. To tell the truth, illegal people have suffered a thousand times more, but people only see their own suffering. Um, So you have immigrants here that are making some very... Uh, very interesting points about, well, they're, they're making points that are made in the immigration debate, but they're allowed to at some level, or it's it's easier for them to because they won't be shouted down as racist. Although the New York Times, you'll see there, did pull this whole well because Asian Americans come here for graduate degrees. They can't, okay, a lot of Asian Americans don't come here for graduate degrees. Okay. There are a lot of people that come from Southeast Asia, from the Philippines, from uh, any number of countries that have very low GDP per capita, very Philippines is a, a tremendous poverty. There's some very poor countries um, that we're talking about. We're talking, about, I mean, South Asia, poverty in India and Bangladesh and Pakistan. If you've never been exposed to, you've never been in South Asia. Let me tell you the poverty there will, 
way beyond anything you'll see in the United States. Uh, so they're not all coming to this country for graduate degrees, okay? Uh, a lot of them come with no advantages, really, and they just manage to make it happen. And this is where you get into this very uncomfortable discussion for some Democrats about, gee, I wonder if in the East, we can differentiate now somewhat, or just for the purposes of our discussion, if if families of uh, East Asian descent and South Asian descent that have intact family structure and put an emphasis on education, could that maybe have some bearing on this discussion? Is there a is there a cultural aspect of some immigrant immigrant groups in the aggregate that we would want to discuss and at least encourage uh, among immigrants that come to this country? Or no, is that imperialistic and that's wrong? Um, it should be. Pointed out, everyone, for those of you listening, if you didn't know this, Asian Americans now have a higher household income on average than white Americans do. So uh, th- that's just a, a data point, but it goes to show you that this notion of white privilege, that's interesting because white people on average aren't even the wealthiest as a matter of household income in the country right now. So that white privilege thing isn't nearly as powerful as a lot of the media would lead us to believe. The the Democrat left perspective on this seems to be quite lacking. They don't deal with facts. They deal with emotions. Um, But uh, this this New York Times piece, I I don't have the time. I don't want to take the time. I know we've got to move on to some other topics here. I want to discuss uh, some left wing conspiracy stuff and healthcare, and also um, new data on why people voted for Trump and all and crime some issue, some uh, issues of uh, police and police being allowed to be police we, we've got a, a lot of things and I, I don't, I'm realizing I'm almost on the third hour of the show already um, but we'll, we'll get to all of that and more I just this New York Times piece was so interesting because I've made this case before uh, that why did the Times write it I, that's a good question sometimes maybe they a story is compelling enough that they'll risk going against the prevailing narrative, although they do massage the narrative here in some places to make it seem like, well, I mean, you can tell this was written by liberals, but they are they are dealing with this pushback that legal immigrants have against illegal immigrants. And you think to yourself, uh, okay, well, it does seem to me like um, that's understandable why legal immigrants would be uh, vexed by illegal immigrants, especially when they're in their in their neighborhood, in their schools. Like, well, why is this okay? Why did I go through all that? These are the questions they would ask, understandably so. Kay in Ohio, iHeart app. What's up, Kay? Hey, Buck. Uh, Shield High, first off, I know it's a little bit late, but congratulations on the new show. Well, thank you. Shield High. Shield High, sir. So um, I, I myself am not an immigrant. However, I come from a, an immigrant family. Actually, more than an immigrant, I come from a refugee family who came after uh, after the fall of Saigon. And um, and so I think we have a little bit of standing to comment on the the whole immigration situation, you know. And it's 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 really frustrating <clears throat> that um, that you know for for us to come over to America, it took it took a war. It took us like 20 years of war, and then. America just pulling out completely from our country, and then all of a sudden we don't have a country anymore. And that's what it took for us to originally come here. And uh, our family did engage in a little bit of um, little chain migration, uh, which I know I know you're not a huge fan of, but 
Hey, hey no, no, it's legal. It's it's legal. Uh, that that's completely fine. I'm just saying that you know if you're going to have a point system like Canada, you wouldn't have complete preference for chain migration via families over getting the most skilled immigrants. But there's nothing there's nothing wrong with it. It's just it's a question of policy, not a question of legality. Oh, certainly. But I mean, well, again, that was that you know for. You know, it took it took years for us to bring like our family, and it came bit by bit. You know, we at first we had spouses come over. So some of my aunts and uncles didn't come over at first, and they came over later. And then some of my cousins. Uh, I remember um, the process to bring my cousin over. Two of them started in the the late '90s, and I didn't finally meet them until uh, 2010. And they didn't. So it took um, it took like 11 years, I believe, for them to finally get to America. And it was it was a lot of heartbreak, a lot of heartache. Just uh, we always thought that we were about to get them in, and then all of a sudden something else would happen. And this is coming from a you know a communist nation, so the the whole situation. Like if you think American bureaucracy is bad, like that one's a yeah. You have, you have you have zero recourse in a communist country. I mean, uh, yeah, it's yeah. No, uh, there's 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 no uh, there's not much criticism of the government there, um, <clears throat> as I'm sure you can imagine. But you know they they had they uh it was interesting you know just as a side note Kay, I remember being in Vietnam and uh going to a, mu- a museum that was a, more or less a museum of American war atrocities was what the museum was, which as an American you're not used to seeing anywhere but that that they had a whole museum but that's what it was depicting yeah it was, it's a little bit embellished uh, was was that in Saigon itself I think I was there yeah but you know what I'm talking about and that's that's that exists. I mean, there's a whole different narrative of, of the war, and there are museums uh, dedicated to it. But uh, I, that's, I know, a, a diversion from what we're talking about right now. But that that always stayed with me. I was like, wow, they've they've really gone with this story and uh, taken it to a, a new level. But no, I, look, I, I appreciate hearing from uh, from somebody who has a personal understanding of what this process is like. But I'm sure, Kay, did you see this New York Times piece? It's it's a really good read. You'll see all of us, you'll see legal immigrants uh, who are making the case or or I should say asking the questions that uh, people who are GOP voters, Trump voters, conservatives, any number of, you know, some Democrats, I guess, still, but very few ask all the time. But it's even more understandable, I think, in some ways that legal immigrants would ask because they really understand that. Look, a lot of Americans don't even know how the legal immigration system works because they haven't had to. But you were just saying you had to wait or your family members had to wait and go through a, a difficult and arduous process. So then being told, well, someone who just came here a year ago and is, is going to, you know, live in a in a in a trailer downtown and, and wants benefits and just is here now. I, I assume that that has a certain a certain impact. Sir, yeah. And, you know, the, the main thing, the main thing I think is that for, for my family, we wanted to come to America because America because we, we saw American we know how they think, and then we thought we learned about the freedoms and all of that, and then, <clears throat> and then you know the, the narrative in, in a communist nation is very tightly controlled. But you know you get stories from visitors and people and stuff like that. So they've always had this picture of America that they've they've been trying for, that they've been longing for, really. And so America is, is not just a landmass. You know, it's also set of ideals and a state of mind. And so <clears throat> after after over a decade of trying to get here, they come here. They they try to make the best of themselves. And, and that cousin I was talking to you about. Uh, one of them became a nurse, another one became a pharmacist, you know, after after about five, five six years or so. So people who just come, just um, come over the border, I mean, it's it's quite a crossing to make. 
but they come here, all they want to do is get away from something else, but they don't want to become a part of America, you know, and, and that's part of the, what's so frustrating about the whole situation. Well, the first they act, you, your first act as somebody who, whether you want to become American or not, your first act on American soil shouldn't be illegal. Uh, but Kay, legal immigrants are Americans, and I love Americans, so I love legal immigrants. Uh, thank you very much for calling in, my friend. Shields, I appreciate it. God bless you and your family. Uh, 844-900-2825. If you uh, feel like uh, weighing in on some of this stuff, we're going to switch up topics, probably talk to you about I'm talking about about the conspiracy-minded left these days. This will be some fun. We'll we'll uh, lighten it up and loosen it up in here a little bit, and uh, then we will get into uh, well a whole bunch of other topics, including cops and their ability to do their jobs under Trump administration. Uh, now that they're not constantly being undermined from the very top. Welcome back to the Freedom Hut on an island of liberty where you're the party and it's full of fellow patriots. Buck Sexton kicks it off. So late night comedy host, entertainer Jimmy Kimmel gives a speech about his infant son's uh, congenital heart condition. And it is uh, emotionally uh, very, um, well, uh, very powerful and connected with people and is now for the last week or so has been at the center of the healthcare debate. Um, and this is, uh, you, you get into dangerous territory here because when you have someone who is, and I, I believe Mr. I don't know, Mr. Kimmel, obviously guys know who I am. Uh, I, I believe him though, uh, to be completely, um, heartfelt. And I think from what I gather also, I don't watch that. Look, I don't have cable, so I don't watch that much TV. Uh, but he's not as much of a, of an, open partisan as say Stephen Colbert is, uh, which my, I, from what I'm told, the Stephen Colbert show, which used to be the Letterman show, is now just like an hour of Trump bashing day in and day out. Um, but Kimmel has a very personal attachment to the healthcare situation right now because of what happened with his child. And he cried on air and it was it was heartfelt and it was emotional. And and uh, we feel for the guy and, and we want, you know, everyone wants the best for him and his family. Just like I want the best for everyone's family. I mean, I, I want anyone who has a child born anywhere um, to be healthy and, and happy. And, you know, this is one of the problems with our, our current state of uh, political. It's probably been a problem for a long time, but it's magnified now, at least in our perception of it because of social media, that uh, we impute negative and even evil intentions to the other side. I don't do this, but, or at least I certainly try not to do this, but it's done to conservatives all the time, right? It's not that uh, we have concerns about climate change science. It's that we are, uh, I don't even know what they think the motivation is there. We're all getting paid off by big oil or something, or we're just, we just like to be contrarian because we want to see the world, we want to see the world die. Uh, that's what people who believe in climate change think of the, quote, deniers. We're morally equivalent to Holocaust deniers. That is why they use the term denier for climate change. Don't ever forget that, uh, by the way. Um, don't ever forget that that's what they think. Obviously, it's a it's a grotesque, uh, grotesque position that they take on that. Um, but on healthcare too, it's not that, like someone like me, it's, it's not that I think that a more free market healthcare system would be 
more likely to provide better, cheaper, more efficient care to more people. It's that I must not like poor people. It's that I must not like, uh, I don't know, old people or whatever it is, right? Whatever it depends. It depends on what, what issue we're talking about, but it's that I'm, I'm hateful. Um, I don't have a difference of opinion on policy that would, I believe, bring out better health outcomes for people. It's that I'm hateful. Um, and you see this with, with the Kimmel, uh, the aftermath of, of, the, of the Kimmel monologue, because now if you want to criticize some of what Jimmy Kimmel said, no, no one's going to criticize that he, the guy's terrified about his newborn son having a heart condition. I mean, what could, I, I, I've never, I haven't had kids yet, but I can't imagine anything more terrifying. Um, but this is a problem you see often with prominent spokespersons from the left, perhaps that happens in the right too, although I can think of it much more readily than the left, that personal tragedy does not mean that the policy suggestion that one comes up with is unassailable, that the policy suggestion is beyond debate, that the policy suggestion cannot be criticized because it's just oh so mean of you because of the loss that somebody had, or, or even in this case, the fear, the anxiety, the personal connection to it. Because you see, health care is personal for all of us. Uh, I, I, no one listening right now, and I include myself in this, uh, is exempt from the fears of dealing with a healthcare system that could bankrupt you, that may not be good enough, that may not save you when you need it to. We've all dealt with it. We've all seen it. We've had family members dealing with it. We know. We have personal experience with this. Uh, and if you've lived long enough, you've had a health scare. And if you've lived long enough, you've had a loved one die uh, from perhaps a situation where their disease could have been treated more efficiently, more effectively, and maybe you paid a whole lot of money and the care wasn't good enough and it didn't even save the person, right? We, we've all been there. We've all seen it. We all know. So, yes, there can be a lot of um, a lot of resonance when someone like Jimmy Kimmel, who is a very powerful, very wealthy guy as well, and was able to get his son the best, his newborn uh, son, the best imaginable care, which is great. But we should be very honest about what this means on a policy level. Not everybody is going to be able to get, it doesn't matter what the government says, not everyone's going to be able to get Jimmy Kimmel level or his son's level of care. It's just not going to happen. Some of it is dependent on where you live. Some of it is dependent on uh, socioeconomic status and access. Uh, now, that's not to say you'll get no care, but are you going to have top cardiac surgery? Even in, even in his telling of the story, there was, I forget what the specifics were, but there was some level of luck in the, the, the exact surgeon they wanted was able to come to the hospital at exactly the right time to perform the surgery because time was of the essence you know, if if you live in the middle of uh, Wyoming and and you have a, a child uh, born in the local hospital or clinic or whatever, you know that that may not be what happens. And this is just unfortunately the reality of a system that cannot produce, has not produced enough top level uh, cardiac surgeons for everybody to have access when they want at the at the moment they want, and without having to pay vast sums of money for it. You know, healthcare has uh, a lot of emotional resonance with us for a good reason, but we also need to be um, clear-eyed and and sober-minded about what the policy implications of all this are. I mean, so Jimmy Kimmel uh, had the following to say on this: 20- "Say we got to fulfill President Trump's contract 
lowering premiums is a center coverage that passes to, the Jimmy Kimmel one. test. If we do that, we get an American plan, not Democrat, not Republican, an American plan, and that's where we need to be. Senator, uh, since you mentioned this test, since I am Jimmy Kimmel, I would like to make a suggestion as to what the Jimmy Kimmel test should be. I'll, I'll keep it simple. The Jimmy Kimmel test, I think, should be no family should be denied medical care, emergency or otherwise, because they can't afford it. Can that be the Jimmy Kimmel test? As simple as that? Is that oversimplifying it? Hey, man, you're on the right track. And if that's as close as we can get, that works great in government. Now, we've got to be able to pay for it. And that's the challenge. So all those middle class families right now paying twenty to thirty to $40,000 a year for their coverage, we have to make it affordable for them, too. And yeah. that's what I'm hearing. Well, I can, just think of a way, I can think of a way to pay for it is don't give a huge tax cut to millionaires like me and instead yes. leave it how and it now, is. Now we've just gone off into never, never. It has nothing to do with anything. Uh, but this, this no one should ever be denied care. Okay, what does that mean? You're not denied emergency care. We all know that. That's been the law for a long time. So if you go into the hospital, you say, I'm sick, I need help, they have to treat you. But what level of ongoing care do you get? Uh, those of you, I'm sure some of you listening know exactly what I'm talking about. Those of you who have dealt with a chronic pain condition. Um, I've dealt with chronic pain before. It's it, it's really debilitating. You know, at first people are sympathetic and they don't really want to hear about it. And then you're on your own. And, you know, I, I've, I've dealt with a chronic medical condition, celiac disease. Have to deal with it every single day. And it does not, it is not fun. Um, but what level of care are you entitled to? Uh, do I do I get to see for a chronic pain condition? Do I get to see the um, best physical therapist or the you know the, the best pain management specialist in New York City at will? And let me tell you something. One, one of the pain specialists I know of here in New York City run, is excellent, but runs his practice like a like a a Swiss watch in the sense that it is a business. You come in at a certain time, you get a procedure, you are either paying with a credit card or you have established beforehand what the payment will be. That is it. And it is very expensive. And a lot of uh, the a lot of the treatments are not necessarily covered by insurance. So what that but what if that makes me better? Do am I entitled to that? What does healthcare even mean? Where does healthcare stop and start? These are the the left doesn't want to deal with this. They don't want to talk about this because it's uncomfortable. It's easier to just say Republicans are big meanies. They're big meanies who don't want people to get health care. They want people to be sick and die. And because that narrative is out there, which the Democrats use uh, uh, with a reckless abandon. I mean, they just they'll say that stuff. I mean, you see that Elizabeth Warren, all these other people out there on the Democrat side saying people are going to die. It's all so terrible. Meanwhile, you have Republicans out there trying to make this case trying to make a more nuanced but more honest case to the American people about what is possible when it comes to health care. And you've got Republican Representative Rodney Davis, who was trying to speak. Uh, at, you know, people are uh, congressmen are home now. They're facing some pretty hostile town halls in their home districts. But uh, Congressman Davis was home in Illinois and organizing for action uh, activists. I'm sure, they're a whole lot of fun to talk to. We're outside of his office, and well, I want to play the clip. I want to play this for you, and then we'll talk about it. This is this is what happened when this congressman goes home to Illinois. He's got act quote activists about healthcare outside of his office, and here's how the conversation goes. So- Let me tell you my story. Mm-hmm. I only have one 
instance of knowing what the Canadian healthcare system was about. My wife, did I just hear an uh? Did I just hear an uh? Just can you keep Yeah. Wow. We don't have that much time with you. We don't have a lot of time, so. Have I been moving? But did I just hear an uh when you talk about somebody who fought cancer? That's okay, offensive. My wife, when she was diagnosed 18 years ago. <laughs> When my wife was diagnosed 18 years ago, she was told by a primary care physician that it was in her head. But because she was a great advocate, was able to actually push for the right tests, she was able to get diagnosed and she had colon cancer at a stage two. Because we were able to fire that primary care doctor, we were able to come back and get a new one. You know where he was from? He was from Canada. And you know what he told my wife? He said, in Canada, we wouldn't have gotten to you until you were stage four. In Canada, we wouldn't have gotten to you until you were stage four. Uh, an important thing for a lot of Americans to hear right now, I think, as we're once again being told that other countries have such better healthcare systems, other countries have figured all this out, that we are stuck in the dark ages of the industrialized world when it comes to providing health care for our citizens. Um, well, that all depends on what you think healthcare is. Also, should be noted, by the way, that this uh, congressman and he he called them out. They there was a hemming and hawing when he started talking about how his wife was diagnosed with cancer 18 years ago. These people have no respect at all, and and they're not they don't even know what they're advocating for when it comes to healthcare. These activists, these idiots that are running around that are saying that people are going to die. And here, 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 this is. This is from Politico today. Left adopts shock tactics in Obamacare repeal fight. One newly formed progressive super PAC is planning to cart caskets to Republican lawmakers districts and hold mock funerals for their constituents. Another activist is encouraging protesters to ship their own ashes should they die without health care to GOP lawmakers. And other progressive groups are planning graphic die in protests as they work to derail GOP plans to repeal Obamacare. Uh, this is their version of dialogue. This is their version of discourse. Healthcare is serious. It is deadly serious. And you have people that are getting together as activists, spending time and money to act like morons. And pretend. I, I guess they really do. They, you know, they, they've watched so much Comedy Central and so much MSNBC uh, that they believe that Republicans really just want people to die. That we don't think there's a better way for this to be done. We just don't care. We're just mean. It is hard to fathom how anyone in this country could be so stupid. But then when you think about the way that they are indoctrinated every day, all day, day in and day out with Republicans are evil. Republicans don't like poor people. Republicans are racist. They don't want to help minorities. They don't want to give health care to people. Uh, they have internalized this. And it's a comfortable narrative for them. Good guys, bad guys. They're the good guys. Now, when you present them with a story like this congressman did in Illinois about a real-life healthcare situation dealing with cancer and what that was like and what it means and uh, how this is illustrating that just giving health insurance to people is not enough, that we need to find out that there ha that there will always be rationing. It's just a question of does the market do the rationing or does the government do the rationing? 
And if the market does the rationing, the upside of it is that means there's competition. That means there's better provision of services. That means there's advancement. If the government does the rationing, guess what? That's didn't really work out so well in the Soviet Union. It's not working out well in Venezuela either. Government government making all the decisions is a guaranteed disaster. The market making decisions about healthcare will be imperfect, but at least the more the market is in charge, the more there will be benefits and prosperity in that marketplace, in the healthcare marketplace, for people to enjoy. Meaning cheaper, better, faster, more efficient service. This is the real healthcare discussion, but it's not what the Democrats want to have right now. They want to send ashes to members of the GOP Congress, and they want to stage die-ins and act like a bunch of friggin' babies. Ooh, this is rough. Lots of journalists reporting that... uh, Source in the FBI field office in L.A. said that Comey was in the L.A. FBI office when his firing was announced. He found out by watching it on TV with everybody else. Comey found out he was fired from TV news. Ouch. Uh, You also have, uh, uh, what is this, Brian Schatz, uh, I believe, uh, who is a United States senator from Hawaii, writing... Uh, we are in a full-fledged constitutional crisis. Uh, we have gone well beyond. This is uh, that was the quote. I'm just saying this now. We've gone well beyond the "I can't tell if you're being sarcastic" phase into just all-out. Who can outdo everybody else with the hyperbole of the the fascism we're all under right now? Uh, Scott from Panama City, uh, Panama City on WFLF. What's up, Scott? Hey, bud, man, I love your show. Thank you, uh, brother. And we, hey, all the trustors out here, we love the Comey firing. Should have been done sooner. Hey, we love it. I'm sending some bottle rockets off here in a few minutes. Don't <laughs> break. Um, hey, we love it, man. What's what's to be scared of? Yeah, I, I don't know what what the big oh, deal. What is the big deal, Scott? Do you know what hey. the big deal is? Because I don't know what the big deal is. The, the president can do this, hey. and who cares? Yeah, should have done it sooner. I also love this notion that that if Comey's fired, then the whole investigation goes away. Uh, yeah, because everybody in the FBI there's is just no going there's no there's no investigation, there's no evidence, there's nothing, and it's uh you know it's just what it is. Yeah, it's just nonsense, uh, man. But they're, they're gonna they're freaking on. out, man. Scott, I don't know if you're on Facebook or or uh, or Twitter, but if you do a hashtag Comey search, you'll just see. Oh man, we're we're Scott. I don't know. They think uh-huh. we're they think we're all gonna die, man. It's it's all over for us. But uh, but you know the people that elected Trump, in addition to the people who have caught on board the Trump train. Since then, including millennials who are up, uh, I'm sure black America is waiting on Trump to do something. Trump's got one of the greatest opportunities to get make inroads with uh, African Americans of any president since Abraham Lincoln. Well, he used to say so during the campaign, and uh, I, I think that there, I think that Trump does have a real possibility to make inroads with minority communities. But for today, man, the Comey, the Comey firing is going to drive people nuts. Oh, it's, Scott, it's, it's, I. I, I it is delicious. We love it. Shield time, man. Thank you for calling in. Uh, Steve in Massachusetts, W-H-Y-N. What's up, Steve? Hey, Bob. Yeah, I finally got through. You You have a great show. Thank you. Um, um, I, I, oh, yeah, did this Comey firing was, like, so awesome. Finally, repeal and replace Comey. I mean, I, I just can't get over it. This, this is great. Um, I don't even think he should be a lawyer, never mind um, an FBI director. Um, uh, Trey Gowdy's uh, cross-examining him. Uh, on basic legal questions was like, I mean, you could tell he was setting the table 
um, <laughs> on, on this guy. Um, but, but, but the thing is, um, I, I do have one question that's been bugging me for a long time. Um, on Guccifer 2.0... We've was, only got uh, about a minute here, so we've got to make this quick, Steve. Go ahead. No, no, Guccifer 2.0 claimed to have hacked the Clinton Foundation and to have gotten a hold of the Democratic Campaign Contributions Committee list. And but all of a sudden the story disappeared, and but the the Clinton Foundation vehemently denied it, and um I mean that was a clear case of possible Russian hacking, and, and they just didn't want anything to do with it. Uh, and I, I have to look. I honestly I, I followed as closely as I can, Steve, but that one I'd have to go check out again. I, I don't remember that offhand. But thank you for calling in from up in Massachusetts. I appreciate it, sir. Are those the rest of you who are lighting up the lines? Uh, if you can hold, we'll try to get to you. Otherwise, you can always call back tomorrow. But thank you very much for, for calling in. I do appreciate it. Uh, Going to have our friend Ben Shapiro of Daily Wire joining us here for some news of the day in just a moment. So we've got that, plus uh, author of The War on Cops. And we'll close out the show strong. We'll be right back.
he spreads freedom. Because freedom's not going to spread itself. Buck Sexton is back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. We've got Ben Shapiro on the line. He's editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com, syndicated columnist, host of The Ben Shapiro Show, writer for National Review. Check out his latest on DailyWire.com. Ben, thanks for coming back to the hut. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So tell me about this study. I know it's up on the Daily Wire that Trump didn't win because unemployed white workers were left behind by the economy. That tends to be the prevailing narrative in many uh, corners on this one. Why did he win? Yeah, so so basically this study comes from PRI in the Atlantic, and they did some, uh, some, reg- uh, some multiple regression analysis. And what they found is that there were several factors that led to people supporting Trump in these white, blue-collar areas. And some of those factors included, number one, registering Republican, which makes sense. But then second was fear of cultural displacement. They said that, quote, white working-class voters who say they often feel like a stranger in their own land and believe the U.S. needs protecting against foreign influence were 3.5 times more likely to favor Trump than those who did not share those concerns. They, they, so that's you know, significantly more likely to favor Trump than Hillary. Also, if they wanted illegal immigrants deported, they were 3.3 times more likely to express a preference for Trump. If they disdained higher education, they thought the college was a gamble as opposed to being a guarantee, then they were likely to favor Trump. But one thing that did not favor Trump is if they were in fair or poor financial shape, it actually predicted support for Hillary Clinton rather than support for Trump. So poor white working class folks that actually just by itself is more of a predictor for support for Clinton than it was support for Trump, which suggests that it wasn't the, the narrative that we keep hearing out there is that it was all of these white working class people who felt left behind by the globalizing economy. They felt left behind by free trade. They felt left behind by the by Wall Street. And it wasn't so much that as a bunch of people who felt left behind by a country that the Democrats are pushing that basically says that that white people are going to be a minority in the near future. And that's a wonderful thing. And we have to have sectarian concerns divide us among races and multiculturalism has to be promulgated over assimilation and men and women are at war. Basically, the, the polarizing politics of the left led to Trump, not the economics of, of free markets, which is something different than, than most people have been saying for the past few months. We keep hearing from sort of the moderate Republican crowd that, ah, you know, Trump's victory is a, is a victory for protectionism. It's a victory for government subsidies. It's a victory for bigger governments in all of these areas because Trump isn't a traditional Republican. And what the study suggests is actually, no, not so much. What it actually suggests is that the victory for Trump is a victory against a leftist attempt to divide Americans by race, by class, by sexual orientation, by sex, and also to, to overthrow the notion of a common Americanism we all share. So Trumpism, in a sense, according to this study, and it also certainly makes sense, I think, as, as you describe what the, the various points are that it makes, Trumpism is a backlash, or perhaps more aptly put, a, a corrective to the progressive culture war that's been waged for a long time. I think that's exactly right. I think that even you know when you talk to folks who voted for Trump, this seems like much more of a pressing issue than tariffs. I think that the intelligentsia constantly want to try and intellectualize how these elections go. And so they go, okay, well, what policy did Trump do differently than Romney that would explain why Trump did better than Romney in this election? And uh, it must be tariffs. It must be that he's in favor of big government. It must be all of these other things. The reality is that the reason that Trump did better than Romney is because Hillary was a worse candidate than Obama. And second, we'd already had another four years of Obama helping to polarize the country. And the more you polarize the country, the more people are going to react to that and say, listen, I don't feel like playing the bad guy in the little morality play that you set up for us here. 
And also on immigration, which I know is one of the other areas that Trump, Trump clearly got a lot of resonance with voters on immigration. But the reasons, it seems to me, may be a little bit different, especially in light of, of this study. But also, I think this has been apparent for, for a while on an intuitive level, that the rhetoric around, immig- specifically the rhetoric around illegal immigration, uh, is is annoying to people. Um, it's it's annoying to be told that you can't say illegal, that you have to say undocumented Uh, undocumented person now or whatever it may be you can't say illegal alien certainly you can't say even illegal immigrant now they're that's the pc police at work and also things like doing the jobs americans won't do this is a a, a repeated talking point on the left but the bizarre implication of it or it's not even really an implication it's just being said is that americans are lazy and think they're too good for certain jobs i think americans get sick of hearing that I think it's exactly right and i think that when it comes to illegal immigration one of the things they're particularly irritated with is this idea that if you want to have a border, that if, if you want to protect American culture from people who are coming in and not assimilating, that that's something bad. And it's not even, I think the left wants to paint it like there's a bunch of people in Ohio who are afraid illegal immigrants are going to steal their jobs, look how stupid they are, ha ha ha. But isn't that at all? It's this feeling that there are a bunch of people who are coming into the country who haven't assimilated to American values, and the left is insisting that they not assimilate to American values, that actually it's better if they don't assimilate to American values, because we don't want a melting pot, we want a bag of marbles and everybody gets to be his own person and, and we have a bunch of different cultures that all coexist, but we don't actually have to recognize any value to traditional American culture. That's what ticks people off about illegal immigration, the, the idea that people aren't playing by the rules and everybody else has to play by the rules. That's what makes them angry, not even the economic concern. And I think the hypocrisy of Democrats pushing for a massive regulatory state, all these little rules and orders that come out, not even from Congress, but that's a problem too, uh, but from the various federal agencies, Americans are expected to obey all of that because it's the law or it's, it's a regulation with the force of law. And then you'll have Democrats going on TV saying, come on, we don't want people in the shadows, illegal immigration. So what if there's some document fraud and some other things that go into it too? Not really a big deal. You don't want to break up families, do you? I think people understand at a very basic level that that is a double standard that they're sick of hearing about yeah i I totally agree and i think that i I think that again the trump movement was much more reaction to the excesses of the left than it was a reaction on behalf of anything coherent in terms of economic policy for example and that's why i always find it kind of laughable i mean the study sort of confirms what i'd already believed which is why i think it's true (laughs) i'm sure but it's but it's it's also a it's it's always been kind of laughable to put an intellectual gloss on on a coherent Trumpism, because Trump is not a coherent figure. He doesn't have a coherent ideology. But what is coherent is the resistance to a leftist vision of the universe that divides American from American. That is coherent. Yeah, and I know that people use the he fights sometimes as, as a far too easy get out of jail free card for anything and everything that Trump would do or say. But I do think there's actually an underlying truth to that that people sometimes lose sight of, which is that, yeah, he, he does give a, a hammer, at least in the media, with which one can hit back at some of these excesses of the left. Whether that means anything on a policy level or not, I think still uh, remains to be seen in, in a lot of ways. But speaking of, of leftist overreach and everyone, we're speaking to Ben Shapiro, he's editor in chief of dailywire.com and a syndicated columnist uh on daily wire ben i i've talked about this one on the show i thought this story was fantastic and i'm glad that that it's being covered uh it's being covered in conservative media in a number of places now about hypatia a journal a journal of feminist philosophy uh i've walked people through the basics here of trans racialism and transgenderism but what i find so fascinating about this isn't just the 
uh, search for heretics that is really at, at the heart of much of what modern academia, especially in this soft social sciences, are really about. Uh, but that the argument's actually a pretty good one, that transgenderism, uh, transgenderism and transracialism line up pretty well from a philosophical, uh, philosophical perspective. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the person who wrote this study, this professor, she, she attempted over and over and over to say, well, I don't really mean that transgenderism and transracialism are the same, but they're sort of the same, right? <laughs> and, and, <laughs> yeah, and they sort of are. <laughs> You know, because they because they, they are. In fact, there's there's a much stronger case to be made for, made for transracialism than there is to be made for transgenderism. And the idea that that sex is somehow less that, that sex is somehow more malleable than race is ridiculous. There is no genetic distinction in any serious sense between the between black people and white people, other than levels of melanin in the skin. And you know they, they, they've yet to identify. When when you talk about Barack Obama as a black guy, right? He's half black, he's half white. Okay, well, wh- how much does is he separate in terms of race from somebody who's entirely white or somebody who's entirely black? I mean, he's just as separate from someone who's entirely white as someone who's entirely black, but he's considered black, meaning that from society's perspective, race is to a certain extent a social construct. We're drawing arbitrary lines around certain percentages of ancestry that are quite malleable and don't have tremendous ramifications for behavior, which is certainly not true with sex, right? Sex is not malleable and it has incredible ramifications for behavior. Men and women are incredibly different for anyone who's never met a man or a woman. They're very different. So the idea that, that you can shift your sex and that's totally fine. Caitlyn Jenner, who is genetically a man is, can be a woman. And we're all supposed to sit here and go, Oh, I guess that's right. I guess the Caitlyn Jenner is a woman now, but Rachel Dolezal, who is a white woman cannot be a black woman. Again, the, the, the philosophically consistent position here would be Rachel Dolezal cannot be a black woman because she's not black, has no black ancestry, is not a black person in any sense of the, in any sense of the term. She's adopted some cultural hallmarks, supposedly, of, of black living, but that doesn't make her black, you know, and, and neither can Caitlyn Jenner. That, that would be philosophically consistent, but it's wildly inconsistent to say that people can shift their sex, but they can't shift their race. That's just silly. Yeah, in this story as well, I, and for everyone listening, uh, I, I know we talked about it on the show, but in case you missed it, a, a female professor, I think an assistant professor, uh, published an essay in a peer-reviewed academic journal uh, that was likening trans uh, from a philosophical perspective, at least walking down the pathway of whether transgenderism and transracialism, i.e., you can your, your race is an is a state of mind essentially, like trans, like gender has become a, a state of mind. Uh, and she has been roundly uh, criticized, pilloried, attacked from all all different corners in the left. As a result of this, it was a peer reviewed journal, and now the peer reviewed journal has pulled her research because they say that what was it? What's the line, Ben? It, that it, it's violence or a form of violence? Uh, uh, it, yep. It's it, it's a, 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 a epistem. What was it? Something about violence? Epistemic, uh, epistemic yeah, violence. Yeah, yes. Epistemic, epistemic violence. Yeah. It, it's just it, it's just asinine. But again. The, the the claim that it was epistemic violence was based on the fact that in this paper she didn't she she called Bruce, Caitlyn Jenner at one point Bruce Jenner talking about before the transition she dead named him that's using and then she dead named him right exactly <laughs> for people who don't know what dead naming is the idea is that once you transition we can never again mention the fact that you spent the vast majority of your life living under this other name Bruce Jenner just disappears from the rolls of history Bruce Jenner is actually dead he's dead right <laughs> he doesn't exist anymore. So we can't say Bruce Jenner without saying the late Bruce Jenner, I suppose. So, but that was a reason to pull a peer-reviewed academic paper that was philosophically sound. Again, this is also insane, but the left is insane. They've lost their minds, and they're going to destroy anybody who disagrees with them, not on scientific grounds, but on philosophical grounds. Which It's the same thing that happened with Bill Nye, the science guy, on Netflix after he did 
his whole gender is a spectrum routine. They went back to his show from the 1990s on Netflix and they pulled an entire segment that said that gender is not a spectrum, that sex is chromosomally determined. They, they actually just cut it right out. It doesn't exist anymore. We're now, in, we're now living in, in Stalin's scientific Russia where the future is known, the future is just leftism, but the history is always changing because we have to whitewash everything that came before. Yeah, it's very Soviet. It, it truly is. In fact, in the Soviet archives, it was known people would go in with, with razors and remove names from hard copies of things to, to really make sure that they never existed or they never worked for the organization or whatever the case may be. And uh, the, the left has embraced uh, some similar tactics here, except they're doing it with Netflix. Um, ben Shapiro, everybody's editor-in-chief of DailyWire.com. It's a great site. Go to DailyWire.com and read his latest. And uh, check out the Ben Shapiro show as well. Ben, thanks for making the time. Good to have you. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Welcome back, everybody. We've got Heather McDonald on the line. She's a Manhattan Institute senior fellow and author of The War on Cops, book available in fine bookstores and on Amazon. Heather, thank you so much for giving us some time. Oh, my pleasure, Buck. Thank you. Uh, Let the police police, you say. Also, you write this in a national review. Tell me a bit about what that means in the current climate. Well, what it means is uh, get rid of the false narrative that says that proactive policing is racist and oppressive uh, to law-abiding residents of high-crime areas. Proactive policing is the thing that, that cops should do in between 911 calls rather than simply responding to a crime after the fact. They should be trying to avert a crime by paying attention to suspicious behavior, asking a few questions, getting out of their cop car at 1 a.m., to question somebody standing on a known drug corner hitching up his waistband as if he has a gun, or uh, responding to street disorder, public disorder, those large groups of teens hanging out on street corners fighting, uh, dealing drugs. It's out of those knots of disorder that uh, drive-by shootings emerge. But today, cops are reluctant to engage in that type of policing because they are routinely denounced as racist for doing so, even though the reason that they are trying to quell public disorder is because that's what the law-abiding residents of minority neighborhoods beg them to do. What is this study out about the FBI, by the FBI that shows that police are, quote, scared and demoralized because of public criticism? What can you tell us about this? Well, the FBI was the one agency within the Obama administration that actually understood what was going on uh, with policing and crime in the country. Uh, FBI Director James Comey gave a fabulous speech in October 2015 at the Chicago Law School warning about what he called the chill wind blowing through law enforcement as a result of the specious Black Lives Matter movement. And recently, a internal study that the FBI did that looked at the really horrifying rise in cop assassinations last year was leaked. And that study uh, came to the conclusion that the Black Lives Matter narrative that says that policing is lethally racist is not surprisingly uh, having an effect on what officers encounter in the streets. It's it's creating just horrible levels of hatred, animosity, and resistance. 
and it is also leading some people uh, to kill or try to kill cops. And what's this about Wisconsin students demanding control over the cops? This is at University of Wisconsin? Wisconsin-Madison, that's right. Yeah, I mean, this is just another example of the complete ignorance on the part of activists and protesters uh, with regards to inner-city crime, with regards to disorder. The campus police... Uh, arrested a student who had been engaged in a persistent campaign of destructive graffiti vandalism, uh, spray-painting the usual F the cops on campus property, causing $4,000 of damage, and the cops arrested him, rightly so. Uh, there is There are few things that more destroy urban civility and the viability of cities than graffiti, uh, but the students are claiming that because the student was black, the only reason that he was arrested was the bias of the cops. Uh, this is just completely fiction, uh, but it is what students are being taught to believe about law enforcement by their professors, previously by the Obama administration. Uh, and by the mainstream media. Heather McDonald, Manhattan Institute Senior Fellow and author of The War on Cops. Heather, thank you so much for joining. We appreciate it. Thank you, Buck. By the way, team, uh, you should go check out BuckSexton.com if you have not already. Posting stories there throughout the day as well as during and after the show. So topics that we hit on, you can uh, go there. Also, Facebook.com slash BuckSexton. If you're listening, please click like you just go to facebook.com slash buck sexton and you can uh, be in touch with all the rest of team buck that way you can send me messages uh the team here looks at them but uh, i respond as quickly as i can as often as i can so we have direct communication my friends and also on uh, itunes buck sexton with america now you can subscribe please do and uh, do me the great honor of uh, telling a friend even maybe share the podcast with a friend that would be fantastic I've already got a show in mind for tomorrow, and it's not even tomorrow, so it's going to be exciting. Until then, my friends, as always, Shield Time.